BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. 96% of Grammarly users say that it helps them craft more impactful writing. Would you agree? Grammarly helped adjust my tone to navigate tough work conversations. And it works everywhere I write, so I can quickly communicate effectively. Your teammate used Grammarly to summarize an important document, making a three-pointer. How did he do it? It only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. You made an incredible slam dunk to end the game. The meeting was canceled, and your team will go home champions. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast. I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. I hope you had a great weekend. In this podcast, episode 268, I want to talk about lifting weights and heart disease. Now, as a diagnosis, heart disease includes a few main types. There's disease in the vessels of the heart that's called coronary heart disease. That results in things like myocardial infarction or heart attacks or MIs, angina, chest pain, heart failure, and coronary death. There can also be disease in the vessels supplying the brain. That's called cerebrovascular disease. And you've heard of things like stroke and transient ischemic attacks. There can also be disease in arteries outside of the brain and heart. That's called the periphery. And we call that peripheral artery disease, which can produce painful symptoms in the muscles during activity due to lack of blood flow, typically in the calf, also sometimes in the glutes, but can be in other muscles. And this is also called intermittent claudication. And there can be other disease in the entire cardiovascular system. Now, heart disease is the leading cause of death globally, taking an estimated 17.9 million lives each year, about a third of which happen in those under the age of 70. While death rates from heart disease and stroke have declined in the United States since 1975, exercise has been shown to reduce risk of heart disease over and over and over again. So why all this matters is that early last month, the American Heart Association put out a new scientific statement on resistance training in individuals with and without heart disease. Now, the article was published in the journal Circulation, and it served as an update to their previous recommendations, or paper, published in 2007, which itself was an update to their first set of recommendations from the year 2000. Now, I've linked all of those in the show notes below, so you can kind of go through chronologically. Again, that's 2000, 2007, and 2023. I'll be honest, having read all these, I think the 2007 paper is far more instructive for folks who have questions about lifting weights with heart disease than the latest update, because it includes a lot more specifics regarding not only what happens to the heart from lifting weights, which many people may be worried about, 
But the inclusion of resistance training in exercise programs for those with heart disease or who are at high risk for it. So we'll cover the highlights of the 2007 paper along with updates from the 2023 scientific statement to bring you up to speed. To begin, both papers cover the functional benefits of resistance training that we all know and love, such as improved body composition by way of decreasing body fat and increasing muscle mass, also increasing strength, balance, preventing falls, and so on. The new paper adds data that resistance training improves sleep quality and reduces risk of depression and anxiety as well. Now, from a medical perspective, only the new guidelines go into some detail about things like blood sugar and blood lipid or cholesterol levels. Yes, resistance training reduces average blood sugar levels in those where it's high, so those with type 2 diabetes or insulin resistance, something like that. The new guidelines cite data suggesting there's a 17% reduced risk of developing diabetes in those who lift compared to those who don't. That's great news, and we also have recent data that shows that lifting weights improves blood sugar management in those with diabetes particularly if the individuals actually get stronger when lifting weights. For instance, this recent meta-analysis showed that those with type 2 diabetes who had the greatest improvements in their 1RM strength tended to see the greatest improvements in their average blood sugar levels. Now, resistance training also reduces low-density lipoprotein, or LDL, levels and triglycerides to a modest degree, while tending to increase high-density lipoprotein, or HDL. The decrease in LDL on average is about 10 to 13 milligrams per deciliter, which is actually greater than the decrease that we saw in the vegan diet study, the twin study we talked about on the last podcast. Now, of course, it matters what your starting cholesterol levels are, what your starting LDL level is in this particular case. The higher it is, the you know, bigger difference you're likely to see. And so those weren't the same between the two studies, but I did find that interesting. Now, this is a big enough drop you know, in both cases to probably help reduce the risk of heart disease, particularly on a population level. Though most people will need additional lifestyle and possible medical interventions to optimize their risk, depending on the person. With respect to changes to the heart itself, the new paper does not say anything about how the heart and circulatory system change in response to lifting weights. And I feel like this is an oversight, as this document was written to be widely consumed, presumably, and should, in, in my opinion, extensively cover some of the heart-related things that might deter doctors and other people reading it from recommending or participating in resistance training. The 2007 paper goes hard, though. For example, the 2007 paper provides ample data showing that resistance training induces physiological, that is, adaptive, changes to the muscular chambers of the heart, specifically the left ventricle, and again, they go out of their way to say that these are not pathological or maladaptive changes. And this is important, as it's been suggested that resistance training causes pathological changes in the left ventricle, causing it to grow thicker. This is called left ventricular hypertrophy, or LVH, which is defined as an increase in the mass of the left ventricle and can be secondary to an increase in wall thickness, an increase in cavity size, or both. But the presentations can vary depending upon the underlying pathology. Now, the thought is that because resistance training causes blood pressure to go up, especially when lifting heavy, one study found that nearly maxing out on the leg press increased systolic blood pressure from the normal 120 millimeters of mercury or less at rest to over 400 millimeters of mercury. And because of this, the heart would have to have abnormal changes from this kind of stress leading to heart disease down the road, presumably. So the thought is that resistance training causes hypertrophy of the left ventricle and maybe some of the other chambers of the heart. But doesn't all exercise actually increase hypertrophy of the heart, this so-called athletic heart? And we actually reviewed this in a previous podcast, so I'll give you the cliff's notes. So with endurance training, it was proposed that aerobic training caused an increase in both the size of the left ventricle's chamber and also its wall thickness in order to deal with an increased amount of blood being pumped into and out of the heart. Because most of these adaptations were thought to be driven by processes that occurred during the relaxation phase of the heart, that is diastole, 
and that's when the muscle fibers of the heart lengthen to accommodate being filled with blood. This was called eccentric hypertrophy because eccentric muscle contraction is a contraction that occurs while the muscle is lengthening. In contrast, it was suggested that resistance training caused predominantly an increase in the thickness of the muscle of the left ventricle without a concomitant increase in the size of the chamber. So it's just kind of this isolated left ventricular hypertrophy. And because it was thought to occur while the heart was actively contracting, so the muscle fibers of the heart were actually shortening, that's a concentric contraction, uh, this was dubbed concentric hypertrophy. So instead, the 2007 paper from the American Heart Association points to data showing that the left ventricle, yeah, it does indeed get thicker with resistance training, but the chamber size doesn't get any smaller. And more importantly, these changes do not increase the risk of heart disease or other problems. Recent data that Dr. Baraki and I reviewed in episode 215, the extreme exercise hypothesis, agrees. While eccentric hypertrophy does occur in endurance training, this is the same adaptation seen in resistance training. What's more, the actual thickening of the left ventricle that occurs from endurance training is actually far greater than what we see in resistance training, with the chamber size increasing in a proportional manner. The ratio between the ventricular wall thickness to chamber size is not meaningfully different between endurance and resistance training either. And again, that was episode 215. I'll link that in the description below. But the whole point here is that the changes that we see in aerobic training, which were kind of thought to be, you know, beneficial, those are the same types of adaptations that we see in resistance training. You just get there a different way. Now, unfortunately, the new paper does not talk about this at all, which I feel like is in error. Drive the point home to people reading it that resistance training doesn't cause worsening function or structural changes to the heart. I mean, you guys are the American Heart Association, right? Now, with respect to blood pressure, both papers report that resistance training reduces resting blood pressure. Again, culling some of the concerns around lifting weights, increasing blood pressure, or being problematic for those with elevated or high blood pressure. Now, interestingly, the newest paper undersells, in my opinion, the effects of resistance training on blood pressure, despite citing the correct data. So this data is from NACI in 2019, and it's a meta-analysis of 391 studies, half of them investigating the effect of blood pressure medications on resting blood pressure, and the other half looking at the effects of exercise, all different types, on resting blood pressure. And it found that in those who were exercising, who had a resting blood pressure at baseline, greater than 140 millimeters of mercury, again, normal, is 120 or less, that endurance exercise on average lowered systolic blood pressure by 8.69 millimeters of mercury, and resistance training lowered systolic blood pressure by 7.83 millimeters of mercury. Combined endurance and resistance training lowered systolic blood pressure by 13.5 millimeters of mercury. But the paper, the newest paper from the American Heart Association that was published in December of 2023, did not report those values. It reported values much, much smaller, which is kind of strange to me, considering that this is the most recent meta-analysis kind of looking at this directly. And so again, I think they kind of undersold that. Now, they do go on to say that lifting can improve endothelial cell function, and the endothelium are the cells lining the blood vessels and the inside of the heart. So that's good. Both papers also suggest that resistance training can improve cardiorespiratory fitness as measured by VO2 max, particularly in those with reduced fitness at baseline. We discussed that as well on our conditioning series, and we agree. But in general, lifting is not enough to produce the amount of cardiorespiratory fitness needed to maximize health, but it's certainly better than nothing. So if you had an individual who couldn't really participate in meaningful uh, conditioning training for uh, some specific reason, resistance training might be a good way to improve their cardiorespiratory fitness otherwise. Okay, here's where things get interesting. We just talked about how resistance training can improve blood sugar management, can improve lipid levels, so your cholesterol levels, and lower resting blood pressure. And these are all risk factors for heart disease, along with things like obesity, for example. 
But in 2007, the American Heart Association said, and I quote, data that resistance training reduces cardiovascular disease risk are equivocal. So we weren't doing so hot in 2007 because there's a considerable amount of data actually showing this. And the new paper adds some of this data, suggesting that those who do combined aerobic and resistance training have a 40 to 46% lower risk of all-cause and cardiovascular disease mortality. So that's heart disease mortality, death from heart disease. And further, the new paper goes on to say that lifting may actually provide independent and additive benefits to aerobic training for reducing the risk of cardiovascular disease. Now, they could have spent paragraphs talking about this and really hammered the point home, but they didn't, just a few sentences at the end of a paragraph. So I think that's kind of another oversight in the newest paper. And they go on to make an interesting point that people who do not do aerobic training are unlikely to actually do any resistance training. And that may be true. I I assume that actually is true outside of this uh, particular podcast listenership or podcasts like this. So recent data actually backs this up and it shows that individuals who are not meeting the aerobic physical activity guidelines are less likely to participate in resistance training than those who are aerobically active. For example, only about 3.6% of adults who report no aerobic activity do resistance training compared to 43.5% of adults who are aerobically active. Well, they actually do lift weights. Okay, so let's get on to the actual heart disease stuff, the bread and butter of these papers. Again, it's the American Heart Association. It's got to be about heart disease, right? While the 2007 paper reports data showing that resistance training in those with coronary heart disease is well tolerated and improves quality of life, strength, and endurance, they do not specifically make a recommendation that those with heart disease should lift weights. The new paper does not make specific mention of resistance training in those with existing heart disease outside of heart failure. So let's start there. For heart failure, which is the decreased ability of the heart to pump blood throughout the body, this can be caused by a number of different processes, including left ventricle dysfunction, right ventricle dysfunction, valvular heart disease, pericardial disease, obstructions in the heart, and more. There's been a longstanding concern that lifting weights might actually worsen the condition, worsen heart failure. Mechanistically, it was assumed that the relatively large increase in blood pressure during resistance training, remember that leg press blood pressure of over 400 millimeters of mercury, well, that this elevated uh, increase in blood pressure during lifting weights would place the heart under a strain that's too high for those with heart failure, specifically that the left ventricle would have a tough time pumping against this elevated blood pressure seen in resistance training, and the heart would become even more dysfunctional. The American Heart Association takes special steps and care to remind folks that Adverse remodeling of the heart after resistance training in those with heart failure has not been demonstrated. They go on to say that lifting weights can be incorporated safely into rehabilitation programs for those with heart failure. And the new paper continues to support these recommendations, but otherwise doesn't say much. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. After going to the gym, what's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? For me, I'd probably do some more reading or get outside of nature, maybe both. Whether we're talking about training, a dietary change, or just life, The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you. Therapy can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it. Of course, therapy isn't a single thing per se, but working with a licensed therapist may be helpful for many folks to learn positive coping skills, how to set boundaries, and overall empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suit you, the individual. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BarbellPod today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BarbellPod for 10% off your first month. 
What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Now, with respect to the risk of having like an adverse cardiac event, like a heart attack or something like that during resistance training, the old 2007 paper states that lifting weights has a favorable balance in the ratio of oxygen supply and demand in the heart muscle compared to aerobic exercise, presumably suggesting that resistance training is relatively safe for the heart in general, including those who may have sort of compromised heart function, but who might otherwise get recommended aerobic training to the exclusion of resistance training. Now, the new paper adds that signs or symptoms of heart issues like chest pain, arrhythmias, and so on are less common with resistance training compared to aerobic exercise, stating that, and I quote, resistance training has a lower rate of cardiovascular complications compared with aerobic training. Now, this was a meta-analysis of a bunch of studies looking at those with uh, risk for heart disease or those who actually had active heart disease and were undergoing exercise training or testing. They found that there were 63 non-fatal cardiac complications that occurred during aerobic training and testing, whereas only one occurred during resistance training. And I think this nugget should have been highlighted. Now, there are issues with the data. We don't have time to go through them all here, but I still think this should have been highlighted as it likely goes against the grain for what most people consider is safe for the heart. When you think about it, people who have heart disease, for example, or who uh, ha- are at risk for heart disease, they assume, or at least many assume, that cardio-type exercise is much, much safer than resistance training or that resistance training is uniquely dangerous. And I, again, I think this should have been bolded, underscored, big font, something like that to really just point out that, in fact, even from a mechanistic standpoint, that resistance training is likely to be safe. Now, with respect to cardiac rehabilitation specifically, these are outpatient programs that provide supervised exercise training designed to speed recovery from acute recent cardiovascular events, so things like heart attacks, stent placement, heart transplantation, or hospitalization for heart failure. The American Heart Association provides evidence showing that resistance training is safe in this setting, as patients did not report more chest pain, EKG changes, or complications compared to those who did the rest of the cardiac rehab program but did not lift weights. However, they make no specific recommendations for intensity, volume, or when people should be cleared to lift weights during rehab or otherwise after a cardiac event in either the old or the new paper. Now, currently, there's a general recommendation to use about 30 to 40% of the one rep max for upper body exercises and 40 to 50% of the one rep max for lower body exercises in the cardiac rehab setting, and to do 12 to 15 reps per set, perform two to three times per week. Apparently, there's no volume prescription for sets, only reps and frequency. Now, this is all a made-up recommendation, though I do think it's a reasonable place to start. Now, the American Heart Association acknowledges that the conventional guidelines impose a restrictive weight limit of lifting less than 5 pounds for the first 3 to 12 weeks after a cardiac event like a heart attack. But they go on to say that for those who are low to moderate risk and who are supervised, and who have their heart rate and blood pressure monitored during lifting, they can lift more. They can accelerate their return to previous activity levels. The new paper does not add any information to this, nor do they specifically state that those who were previously inactive or previously not lifting weights could undergo the same type of monitoring and, you know, return to lifting weights faster. Interestingly, there's actually a group out of Texas that has done more resistance training in their cardiac rehab programs for quite a while, even publishing a case report on cardiac rehab done over the internet, so like remote coaching, in a powerlifter who had a quadruple bypass. 
briefly, the patient was a 55-year-old man who had worsening chest pain, and he turned up to an emergency department in Tennessee, and he was found to have significant blockages and disease in the main arteries supplying the heart. He had a quadruple bypass and began his cardiac rehab three weeks later. Now, at 11 weeks post-op, he was cleared to lift more than 10 pounds, and he started to do safety bar squats, overhead presses, and glute ham raises to simulate the traditional squat, bench, and deadlift of a powerlifting meet. At 26 weeks, he returned to his previous exercise training, and he actually competed again 44 weeks after his bypass surgery, where he won his class. I thought that was a pretty cool study, and hopefully that uh, group out of Texas, I believe they're at Baylor, pumps out some more information on this because I really think that could shake up the cardiac rehab world. Maybe barbell medicine, cardiac rehab uh, edition or something like that. Okay, now on to medical screening prior to initiating resistance training. The American Heart Association recommends that folks with diabetes who have a 10-year risk of a coronary event greater than 10% should be screened prior to participation. Of note, you guys should be aware that the use of the 10-year risk is actually falling out of favor because the approach to treating heart disease and risk factors thereof is oriented at reducing the risk of having heart disease-related complications over a lifetime, not just in the next 10 years, obviously. And so it looks like we're going to start adopting or shifting to this 30-year risk tool, which was actually just released last week, and I've linked that in the description below. Now, both papers go on to say that medical testing is not recommended prior to resistance training, provided that the training is initiated at a low to moderate level. They do recommend consulting a physician prior to starting lifting weights in those with uncontrolled high blood pressure, major risk factors for heart disease, those with implanted pacemakers or defibrillators, and those with a history of heart attack or stroke. Despite creating you know, this barrier to exercise, I do think those are reasonable. And if you're a health or fitness professional, you probably want to be aware of the Physical Activity Readiness Medical Examination, or PAR-MED-X which is an assessment tool that can be used by the healthcare professional to help determine whether or not someone should be cleared to lift weights or otherwise exercise. That's pretty important in those who maybe aren't familiar with the current guidelines, current recommendations, or exercise in general. So I've linked that in the show notes below. Interestingly though, the American Heart Association also recommends that those with diabetes at any age or those with musculoskeletal limitations be evaluated by a physician prior to lifting weights. Now, I think these are less reasonable and create an unnecessary barrier to entry for participating in resistance training, provided we're talking about diabetes that's reasonably well controlled and the musculoskeletal limitations didn't just show up recently or are progressive. In short, I'm not really sure what a medical evaluation adds in either of these cases, but the new paper basically repeats these recommendations anyway. As far as resistance training recommendations for those with heart disease, but who are not in a cardiac rehab program. The 2007 paper's recommendations are somewhat similar to the current exercise guidelines, recommending 8 to 10 exercises that include all of the major muscle groups of the body being performed for 10 to 15 reps for a single set and less than 40% of the one rep max two days per week. To their credit, the American Heart Association in both the 2007 and the recent paper includes specific exercises, the chest press, pull downs, leg press, triceps extension, and biceps curls to name a few. Can't leave out the arms. They also include a rep weight chart that correlates the repetitions possible with percent of one rep max, presumably so that folks don't get their one RM tested prior to starting exercise. You can imagine somebody turning up to the gym and being like, hey, I am at high risk for heart disease. And then the fitness professional's like, we had to test your one RM just to make sure we're not lifting too heavy. <laughs> be a, a bad day potentially. Now for this rep weight chart, they say that 17 reps are probably the maximum amount of reps possible at 60% of a one RM. 12 reps is probably the max that you could do at 70% of a one RM. And to me, that both, both of those things seem pretty accurate. Where it starts to go a little sideways is they say you could do eight reps max at 80% of your 1RM and five reps at 90%. 
That seems less likely, but that's probably mostly in a trained individual or somebody who's uh, not uh, at high risk for heart disease and just starting exercise. So close enough for government work. They also give a nice account of the double progression progressive overload model, recommending that people increase the reps per set until they can max out the rep range and then they can increase the weight. They even include a discussion of RPE. All of that is pretty cool. Now, on the other hand, there are a few weird recommendations. First one being alternate between upper and lower body work to allow for adequate rest between exercises. I'm not sure if they mean superset or to just alternate them with rest in between each set. They don't really make that clear, nor do they give any sort of program. They do claim that the entire resistance training session can be done in 15 to 20 minutes. So maybe they do mean superset. Although I don't know that 15 to 20 minutes of lifting weights is enough to sort of optimize the risk from a heart disease standpoint or other sort of uh, conditions that can arise from insufficient physical activity. It's certainly better than nothing. Don't get me wrong. But 15 to 20 minutes, I don't know if that's like their, hey, if we tell them it only takes 20 minutes, maybe we'll get them in the gym. I don't know that I have a huge problem with that. It's just kind of weird that that's the dose that they recommend. All right. So that's the first weird recommendation. The second weird recommendation is that they recommend to avoid doing the Valsalva maneuver. Now you knew this was coming, you know, holding your breath, bracing during exercise. You knew the American Heart Association was probably going to say, hey, don't do that. But then when it comes to actually citing data showing that doing a Valsalva is worse than not, of course, there's no citations there. They don't even discuss it. And further, avoiding a Valsalva maneuver isn't really possible during any sort of challenging effort. And the American Heart Association says, hey, you should inhale during the relaxation phase, as they call it. Presumably, that's the way down, the eccentric. And to exhale during the exertion phase, presumably the concentric or the way up. Again, as it turns out, people will hold their breath whether you cue them to or not, if the effort is hard or challenging enough. The third and maybe weirdest recommendation they have here is that people should do resistance training after they perform aerobic exercise. And this is interesting because that's actually one of the few times where some sort of interference effect has been shown. The interference effect being impaired strength gains from doing both strength and endurance training together. Now, recent meta-analyses show little to no evidence of long-term interference effect in most studies, unless aerobic exercise is performed before the resistance training. When I say long-term interference, I'm just talking about strength gained over the course of 12 weeks, 16 weeks, 24 weeks, you know, longer-term studies, not just what happens in a single session. I don't really care what happens in a single session. I care more about our strength gains actually really, you know, diminished or attenuated over a long period of time. Sure, adding a bunch of additional training stress via conditioning to a lifting program can result in a training load that a person cannot currently handle, and that could temporarily reduce their performance until they get used to it, if it is something that they can adapt to in the first place. If you just added a bunch of marathons that you're going to run each week alongside your resistance training, well, I don't know that you could adapt to that ever, but if it's an intelligent, progressively loaded conditioning program, um, that seems more feasible. Long-term, though, the effect on actual training outcomes for concurrent training, that is combining both strength training and conditioning together, the long-term outcomes are really good. The recent 2022 meta-analysis of 43 studies concluding that concurrent aerobic and strength training does not compromise muscle hypertrophy and maximal strength development. However, explosive strength gains may be attenuated, especially when aerobic and strength training are performed in the same session, when aerobic is done before the strength training. These results appear to be independent of the type of aerobic training, the frequency of combined training, training status, and age. So I just thought it was pretty weird that they actually recommended that people do the resistance training after the aerobic exercise. That might make sense in a cardiac rehab program, although again, I'm still not sure why they would have folks do that unless it was just like, hey, we think that the most important thing for you to do in cardiac rehab is to do aerobic training. If you only have you know, X amount of time, do that first and then everything else is bonus. 
they would then have to show data that that actually is a superior outcome. Why not prioritize resistance training? But that's another argument, and I know that data for that doesn't exist yet, but we can hope for that in the future. Now, finally, with respect to exercise prescription, they recommend that those with heart disease do not use an overly tight grip to prevent an excessive blood pressure response, citing the American College of Sports Medicine, that's the ACSM's exercise prescription book, which does not discuss this directly. We know that isometric challenges like a hand grip test do tend to increase blood pressure, but blood pressure is going to go up as a function of muscle mass involved, exercise intensity, and overall effort level anyway. Effectively, any type of activity increases blood pressure. Presumably, though, the American Heart Association thinks that holding on too tightly will increase the risk of having additional cardiac issues by increasing the blood pressure too much, though I think not only is this recommendation difficult to implement, I don't know that that's the case either. And so it seems weird that they just kind of included this additional recommendation other than a CYA, which you can figure out what that acronym means. All right, so that's the gist on both papers. Uh, But here's my gripe. Here's my main criticism. The new paper doesn't really address specific exercise prescription in cardiac patients, which I thought was weird. You know, why not comment further on protocols for lifting after heart attack, you know, during and after cardiac rehab? Or how about the inclusion of resistance training for stroke rehab to improve function and reduce further risk? What about resistance training in valvular disorders, training with various medications used to treat heart disease, or return to training after myocarditis, or really anything that's right in the wheelhouse of the American Heart Association? I mean, at The bare minimum, they could have gone harder on how participating in resistance training reduces risk of heart disease or complications thereof, or spent more time hammering how important it is in addition to cardio, which many may assume is enough. Now, in talking with my colleague, Dr. Baraki, he brought up a good point that the American Heart Association is not going to just publish hot takes on various conditions where data does not exist. And I guess that's fair, but I think not discussing them and instead spending a lot of time and text on programming, which is not very good. Don't get me wrong, it's better than nothing but it just seems like a missed opportunity to me. If you go to American Heart Association publication on resistance training, you're really just looking for the green light or contraindications to participating in resistance training and specifically talking about conditions that people may develop over the course of their life. Well, I think that's important, especially if we know that resistance training can improve function that, and we, you know, there's really no argument there, but further spending some time on whether or not resistance training can reduce the risk of developing these conditions and how to properly implement these things, um, even if it's just a consensus statement or expert guideline, that would be very helpful for a lot of health and fitness professionals. At the end of the day, I just want more people to know that lifting weights is not only safe for the vast majority of people with respect to their heart, but it's also beneficial for their ticker too. All right, that's it for this episode of the Barbell Medicine Podcast. If you like this episode, please share it with a friend and leave us a five-star review. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time. 